I'm Cody Calmers, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. Language, who can use it and how well, has been in the news recently. If you haven't heard, a recent AI language model was released for public use. It's a chatbot from the company OpenAI called ChatGPT. And its capabilities are, to use a technical term, astounding. It can draft essays at an advanced undergraduate level on just about any topic. It can write a scene for a movie script along any premise you specify. It can plan a set of meals for you this week, provide the recipes, compile a shopping list, and tell you how what you're eating will affect your overall health and fitness goals. And in terms of grammar and sentence construction, it makes no mistakes, literally none. This is not your grandmother's chatbot. This conversation is not about how chat GPT works. It is about our current understanding of how language works. With advances in AI allowing us to create more sophisticated programs for using language, that understanding may change in the near future. But even with all the recent advances, the underlying logic behind how these kinds of programs work and what they can teach us about human language goes back decades in research on cognitive science and artificial intelligence. It seems like there's something about ChatGPT that understands the words it's using. The truth is, we don't know yet. It's too soon to tell. What we do know is that we humans understand the words we use. And why we're capable of doing that is one of the great and fantastic puzzles of our species. My guest today, Gary Lupian, is one of my favorite sources of insights about that puzzle. Gary is a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He studies language, particularly semantics, from a cognitive science perspective. This conversation is about Gary's point of view on language, words, and how we use them to both construct an understanding of the world and convey that understanding to those around us. It's not necessarily about endorsing a big sweeping theory, but instead to put together some of the pieces of what we know, what we don't know, and what we may have misunderstood about language. For example, take the famous Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. This is the idea that language determines thought, that if you were to speak a language other than the ones you already do, it could potentially lead to an entirely different way of seeing the world. And really, the big picture of Sapir-Whorf has been settled. The truth, honestly, is not that exciting. Language does determine thought, but only a little and not in any ways that can't be worked around. As Gary describes it, language is a system of categories. The language we speak can orient us toward different delineations of those categories within the world, but no language prevents us from seeing or comprehending any category outright. What's really fascinating here is not the broad aspects of the overarching theory, but the implications for specific cases. There are versions of this that we touch on a lot throughout the conversation. But in terms of grand theories, a general theme emerged in our conversation of describing ideas about language on a spectrum, from Chomsky to Tomasello. Noam Chomsky, you've probably heard of. He's one of the most prolific scholars of the second half of the 20th century. He was a founding father of cognitive science and to a large degree single-handedly determined the trajectory of linguistics for a period of almost 30 years. His most famous construction is Colorless Green Ideas Sleep Furiously. It's a totally legitimate English sentence, but one that expresses an illegitimate concept. It's representative of Chomsky's focus on structure. He didn't care about whether or not anyone had ever used that sentence. He just cared that it was possible to do so. 
Michael Tomasello, on the other hand, takes a usage-based approach to language. Mike has been a guest on the show and is another cognitive scientist who has had a big impact on my own thinking. He believes the way to make sense of language is as a tool, one that allows us to communicate with the other members of our species. Structure is important, but how language is used in real-life social settings is more important. Spoiler alert, both Gary and I are much more sympathetic to Tomasello's characterization of language than we are to Chomsky's. Nonetheless, both theoretical approaches offer important insights about language and the way we humans use it. The way I approached this conversation was essentially to ask Gary the biggest questions I could come up with about language. What's it for? How do words get their meanings? What was proto-language like? What parts of language are determined by critical periods? Then just see where he takes it from there. Overall, this conversation was a real joy to have. We cover a lot of my favorite topics in cognitive science. Language is something I can get really worked up about, and it was fun to be able to talk about it with someone who is so much more knowledgeable than I am. For anyone who has ever used words or had words used on them, I think you'll find something to really enjoy in this conversation. If you enjoy the show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. And as always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. Rating and subscribing are the best way to support this work. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Gary Lupian. The first one that uh, I want to go for is, what is language for? The obvious answer is, is for communication. I once asked uh, just a bunch of people on, on Mechanical Turk, because uh, I, I, I wanted to be able to say, okay, this percent of people say X, right? So th- this very question, what is language for? And communication is something that, you know, probably 70% of people mention in their answers. Um, and, you know, that uh, I, I could be contrarian and say, like, no, that's not really kind of where it's at, but it, it kind of is, right? Um, I mean, I think it's impossible to understand the evolution of language without really framing it around communication. Now, that's not a universal view. So Chomsky has for half a century claimed that language has nothing to do with communication, languages for thought, which on the one hand, and we'll probably get to it later, uh, I actually really agree with. Um, what, what has always puzzled me is why someone holding that position would be so uninterested in empirical work investigating the relationship between language and, and thought, right? And, and kind of a, wants to study language kind of as its own isolated system. So the the kind of the the, the interesting twist, uh, hopefully interesting twist I would put on it is that with communication being the central function, what comes with that, right? So for example, um, one way to think about why it is we can communicate using language as well as we can, it's not perfect. There are lots of things that are hard to to communicate about using language, but you know, it, it, it's pretty good. Uh, so what, one way is to think, well, we, we have these pre-existing thoughts and they kind of align pretty well and language allows us to more easily share them. Okay. Um, but another 
possibility is that it is because of language that our thoughts are as alignable as they, in many cases, seem to be. So it's not just a communicative convenience. It's that in the absence of natural language, the kinds of things that we we could even in principle communicate about would be radically different. So, you know, we could smile at one another and, you know, convey our general state of, you know, uh, arousal and, uh, you know, we could push someone away to signal that, you know, we don't want them there. We could, we could do that kind of thing, sure. Um, but, you know, telling stories, right, referring to things in other times and places, it's not just that language kind of allows us to share those thoughts. It's, it's that language allows us to transform our thoughts into a format that we can then share with other, with other people. So it kind of helps us go from, you know, individual kind of cognizers to, to a community. Um, and, and, and that launches cumulative cultural evolution that I think is, is the, the main thing distinguishing us from uh, other animals. So, you know, I was actually realizing while you were answering that, that I think, but like part of what, what happened, what is happening when I ask that question and you answer that question is that the way that I framed it already has an answer half baked in there. And you alluded to this with the Chomsky thing, but by asking like, what is language for? It assumes that it is for something, which as you are saying is not been a supposition that everyone has made. And primarily Chomsky, who essentially single-handedly architected the like field of like cognitive science linguistics didn't really care about what language is for. He just wanted to know the structure of it. But so I guess, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> this is, I just kind of want to run this by you because I'm not a linguist. I uh, I'm not love either. language. I'm yeah. interested in it. Well, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. And, um, but I kind of think of, uh, I kind of think of theories of language on a scale of Chomsky to Tomasello. Mm -hmm. uh, where on the Chomsky side, basically you have, okay, I'm going to explain language by just saying, look, here's how syntax works. We've got structure. We've got all these things. Uh, that's Chomsky. I like, do people actually do that? I don't really give a shit. Do people actually say this phrase? doesn't matter to me. And then you've got Tomasello on the other hand, Michael Tomasello, um, uh, who's basically like, well, look, if you want to understand language, like go check out what people are doing with it and what problem it's solving. And I think as someone looking outside of that field, maybe that's surprising that that's such a, even that kind of perspective on it has been so divisive. And it was only really in my reading over the last 20 or so years that people really even cared what language was for. I, I like that, uh, that axis, the Chomsky to Tamasello axis. And not surprisingly, I find myself much more aligned with, with Tamasello. But I, I think um, the divisiveness partly comes from the fact that um, I, I, I think Chomsky himself, maybe, but, but certainly a lot of people who are aligned with that position really do care uh, that the work they're doing say something about, for example, how kids learn language and how you know, people use language. So it would be one thing, right, if they viewed the enterprise as for example, uh, pure mathematicians view their enterprise, right? Where they're not that interested in, you know, how it ties in with the world or even with, with physics, right? It's understanding um, mathematical principles 
kind of for their own sake. And many of those things find later applications. And of course, that's great, but that's not the point. I think that's not how uh, linguists in the Chomskyan traditions, the tradition think of their enterprise. Uh, they would be, and in my experience, they tend to, to be offended um, if one claims that, you know, they're just studying language as a standalone system unconnected to how people actually use it or, you know, that the work has nothing to say about how kids learn language, for example. Um, so. Well, I guess that's why the spectrum is Chomsky to Tomasello and not people who are Chomskyans to Tomasello, because I totally agree with your, your point there, that most people are interested. But like, I think it's still important to note that like the way that people start thinking about this is from that Chomskyan frame of view, which is about, hey, language is fundamentally about structure. If you can figure out the structure, you'll derive all the communicative communicative function. That's the like kind of, kind of like underlying sort of thing. Whereas like flipping that on head and say like, well, I'm actually going to try and figure out how people use language as a tool, which is kind of that Tomasello project, which I'm also super sympathetic to in my own understanding of it. That's, that's like, that's how I think of, of, of that. But, um, yeah. You know, and, you're, you're you know I mean, it, it, it's always, it, it always rubbed me the wrong way the the focus on structure also because, uh, and, and I think it comes back to this question of what what is the function what is the what is it for because um whether you're talking about cognition effects on, on cognition effects on communication on its own structure is pretty useless right you have to have content um whereas content without structure can often be you know up to a point you know it's, it's of some use right uh, you know imagine right that all you know is you know, 50 words in some language and you have, you don't know how to put them together. Like that's still something like you can still do something. You can do a lot with it. Um, if all you have is structure and no content, what, what, what good is that? Um, and that's actually been a frustration of mine where, you know, I, like, I, I would love for, um, for linguistics uh, as a discipline. And like I said, I'm not, you know, I'm looking at it kind of as an outsider, but I would love for linguistics to be more actively engaged in uh, theories of meaning, um, you know, where understanding, for example, where word meanings come from. Um, okay. Well, so let's, great. I'm glad you want to engage more in that because my next big thought, or my next big question that I want to ask you is how do words get their meanings? Yeah. So uh, the, you know, there's not going to be a, a simple, snappy answer, right? Oh, really? Oh, I thought you were going to be able to no, tweet it out I, afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Annoyingly, there's also probably not uh, an answer that works for all types of words, right? So, um, you know, let, let's take an easy case, right? Words that we learn through formal education, right? So various scientific terms, Things that, you know, had you not taken that class or, you know, read these books or, you know, were taught a specific kind of thing, you would just have no way of knowing, right? So the answer there is that, you know, it, it, it comes through formal instruction and it, it comes often um, in the context of learning some, you know, mental model, right? So you are, um, I don't know, let's say, you know, learning about um, osmosis, okay? And so, like, to understand what osmosis means, it, it you, you have to kind of build the mental model of 
a bunch of other things, right? Whereas Moses is part of that uh, of that model, and like you learn that right through through formal instruction. Um, then you have a case where, um, you know, especially now having kids of my own, I, I can see it for myself that even before they start to speak there are some very clear meanings that they have in their mind that they can't express linguistically, but that are quite specific, right? So they might have a desire for a specific object, right? And when you give them that object, that desire is satisfied. And it's very obvious, uh, you know, that they wanted this specific thing. Now they have it. Okay. And once they're able to say what they want, Right, it becomes easier. They can use the the name of the object. You can give it to them. It's, 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 it's a much calmer and more efficient process. Right. So there, the meaning uh, was there before they knew the word, and um, it's I think reasonable to say that once they learn the word, um, they kind of map that form, that word form, uh, you know, ball, right, onto onto this object, object category. Um, and then there is the, 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 to me, much more interesting cases, right, where I, I think, and I've been arguing in, in, in my work, that there are many words uh, that are sort of uh, uh, meanings, I should say there are many meanings that are kind of reified by language. So there are categories that we would otherwise not have in our minds were it not for our experience with language. Um, and uh, so, for example, um, I think um, number words and color categories are especially clear examples, right, where, you know, our ability to see in color has little to do with language. Uh, our ability to discriminate different colors, there's, there's work showing that it's modulated by language to some extent, but, you know, it's, it's not like if you don't have color words in your language, you can't tell you know, red and orange is apart. But the psychological reality of red or orange or green or blue as, as categories, um, I, I think would, and there's empirical evidence to this effect, would not really exist were it not for learning color words. So the fact that if you give a bunch of, um, you know, let's say blocks to a... Um, you know, to a, to an older child or certainly an adult and say, okay, you know, sort them in a way that makes sense to you. You know, the, the first thing that occurs to many say, English speakers is to sort them by color, right? It just like, that makes sense. You know, the reds go here, the oranges go here, right? Uh, were it not for color words, it would not be the obvious thing to do, right? Same thing with shapes, right? Squares, triangles, circles, Sure, we can discriminate them, but, you know, that we kind of tend to, as especially as adults, automatically group all the squares together. Like, oh, these are all squares. That's what they have in common. It's so natural that it's kind of intuitive to think that, oh, the reason we have square, the word square, is that it maps onto this concept that, that we have from somewhere. Uh, but in those cases, the evidence is really pointing to more that it's in the reverse direction. We learn square and read because it's part of our language. It's what it means to be a competent speaker. You learn these words. And in the process of learning these words, 
you come to form these categories. There are, of course, many, many categories that we have that we don't have words for. Uh, so it's an asymmetric relationship because when you learn a word, you necessarily learn the category. And by having those words in the language, you ensure that everyone in the speech community learns at least these categories, right? Um, so it's a kind of kind of circling back to this idea of language as kind of helping to align our our thoughts. Um, and, and vocabulary is, I think, doing a whole lot of work in this. So there, to get, <laughs> uh, circle back to, to your, your question, uh, the answer to where do these meanings come from is, well, they're culturally constructed. Uh, they're not arbitrary. They're, there is a reason why many languages do it one way and not, you know, every which way. Uh, but there's also a lot of diversity. So, so there are constraints at work, but those constraints are not just, oh, the world has these categories, and so we attach names to them. It's, you know, it's because it's useful for various reasons, often communicative reasons, um, to, to have this set of categories and to name them. And then, you know, it filter, filters down to the core vocabulary of the language that we expect kids to learn. So there's a couple things I just want to summarize there to make sure I understand and make sure we're on the same page with. So one, at the very end, you were talking about there. Hey, look, so the reason why we see all this cultural variation, this goes back to our Chomsky versus Tomasello thing. It's not like, okay, well, there's just all these arbitrary ways to do things. Sure, there's lots of different ways to do things, but the reason a language does one thing or another often has to do with the situations and context the speakers of that language find themselves in. Now, not everything, but you you can look for explanations via that rather than just throwing your hands up and saying, well, it's arbitrary. It's baked into some sort of structure. And that's uh, something that we get out of the usage-based, um, you know, language as a tool uh, theory. And then the other thing that I wanted to make sure I get there is that, so kind of one way to summarize what you said in terms of how words get their meaning is so again, we can kind of think of it maybe as an axis. On the one hand, there's the very esoteric domain-specific co- uh, concepts like osmosis uh, or mass or something like that. Um, and, you know, that's very formal. You got to, like, it takes a lot of bootstrapping and other stuff you know to get there. Okay, fine. And then there's things that are these very core fundamental concepts that seem to be really deep down within us, whatever that might mean, like want and desire and like that, that, that sort of thing. Um, and so those are kind of two bookends of the spectrum. And then there's a lot of gray area uh, where a lot of the project of cognitive science of languages is, is unpacking what exactly is going on there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So it's, it's not, I don't want to give the impression that I think that we are born, you know, that our minds are blank slates. There's clearly a lot of structure, um, a lot of innate uh, biases. Uh, But I don't think that there are that many innate categories. And language really is a system of categories. Uh, It's it's interesting that, you know, as soon as you venture into a domain where um, you you can't communicate in terms of categories, uh, natural languages stop being useful, right? So, um, one common example is describing a face, right? Uh, faces differ from one another in all of these configural rather than categorical ways, right? It's the difference in the configuration of different parts of the face. And while languages make it easy to name parts of the face, uh, 
they, they don't make it easy to describe all of the, the differences that distinguish one face from another. And so interestingly, if you, if you try to convey someone's uh, you know, face, facial appearance with language, really probably the most effective thing you can do is to rely on common knowledge and to say something like, well, you know, they kind of look like this, you know, celebrity, right? So you, you use language to token a specific representation in the other person's mind and then say, okay, well, imagine this, but, you know, they have, um, you know, fuller lips or something. And so you kind of use language as this operator to, okay, now keep that in mind and then move it in this direction. So that's another thing that language is, is, is good at. Um, and so those categories, um, especially many abstract categories, are really, they're cultural constructions, right? And so, you know, the general notion of desire, right, is, is there, but the way that you express it in, in, in terms of categories, right, um, the, is, is often a linguistic construction, yeah. So there's one other thing that I want to touch on in word meaning specifically before we go on to, to other stuff, and that is um, distributional semantics, uh, vector representations, all of these sort of things. And so I'll just give you my understanding of it. So A, people who haven't heard of this before will you know, kind of have some basis for it, and B, you can understand what I know slash am confused about it so you can you know, disabuse me of, of any wrong notions and, and go further and, and, and tell me. Uh, what this can do for us. And so the basic idea here is that there's this really cool uh, approach to machine learning uh, uh, where you are able to basically construct these mathematical representations of quote-unquote meaning. And the idea here is that you start off with like a billion words from Wikipedia. This isn't structured anyway. It's just like the text of like a billion words, you know, from whatever, you know, thing you've downloaded. And then you've got, you know, this isn't a machine learning, you know, discussion. So this isn't really important, but some sort of thing that's uh, doing, you know, fancy neural network stuff. And then what you have is you map on. Uh, you know, basically you're learning uh, from that billion words and where those words co-occur together and all of that sort of stuff, these vectors like you have in, in math and, uh, you know, so the whatever, whatever they are, maybe there are a thousand, you know, indices and they're, you know, between zero and one. And from that, basically what you get is uh, these crazy things that you can do what look like reasoning with. So for the the classical example, circa 2015, is um, you have a vector for king, a vector for queen, a vector for man, uh, a vector for woman. And the idea is that if you subtract the queen vector from the king, and then you apply that vector to um, uh, man, then what you get is a vector that most closely resembles out of all the words that you learn, the word for female. Why? Because the, the same thing that separates king from queen is the same thing that separates uh, male from female. And just by looking at these contextual factors, you're able to mathematically encode this. Now, if you've never heard of this before, well, maybe all that's kind of like, you know, okay, there's a lot, you know, details going on there. We don't, we don't need to go into that. But the idea is that you're able to, just by looking at co-occurrence, what other words does this 
come this is often used in conjunction with. And then if you look enough of those and have, you know, your fancy mathematical model, uh, which is just sort of basically looking at these co-occurrence statistics, you're able to get something that looks an awful lot like a mathematical, uh, uh, you know, concrete, um, you know, crystallization of meaning. So can you take that and can you help me understand what does that help us understand about where meaning comes from and what doesn't that help us understand? Yeah. So there's a lot there. So the the first thing I wanted to mention is that um, there's been a lot of progress in this domain. Uh, you know, every every month brings with it uh, larger and fancier models, but actually the core ideas are quite old, and already the mo- models that essentially implement everything that you discussed, you know, they were around um, in the mid '90s, um, and and um, even earlier, actually, but they weren't, they didn't have some of these same geometric properties. And so it doesn't require billions of words. You can get it um, with, you know, very small corpora. So Jeff Fellman, who um, was a, he he died, unfortunately, a few years ago, was a cognitive scientist at um, UC San Diego. He has a wonderful little uh, paper in Trends in Cognitive Science from 2004 um, called An Alternative View of the Mental Lexicon, where he reviews um, the actual work that he was uh, uh, instrumental in is from the early 90s. But he reviews some of this work and relates it to theories of meaning. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a great little paper. It has uh, really terrific figures showing how a lot of, for example, the structure in language that has been treated by linguists as uh, ex- extrinsic, right? For example, nouns and verbs or transitive verbs and intransitive ver- verbs that take different types of arguments, that you can get all of that structure simply by keeping track of word co-occurrence statistics. So having a very simple neural network, just predict which word should come next. And it, it's self-supervised in that no one has to tell it whether it's right or not. It's just observing the input. So it makes a prediction. It then uh, gets to verify whether the prediction it, is, it made is correct or not, which is not coincidentally the, the, the key way that kids learn language. It's uh, by, it, it's self-supervised. So they get to uh, observe whether uh, the thing that they're predicting cashes out or not. And so simply by in these, in, in that case, you know, very, very small corpora, you're talking about a hundred words, you're already seeing nouns cluster together, verbs cluster together, different types of verbs uh, being more similar to one another um, than uh, are nouns, but cluster subclustering um, verbs that are mostly used with humans versus verbs that are mostly used with a- other animals versus verbs that are used with inanimate objects. And so all of this kind of uh, sometimes, you know, uh, things that, have traditionally been seen as more syntax, other things that have been seen as more semantics, just coming out from uh, attempting to predict words. And what we've been seeing in the last 10, 15 years is a massive scaling of this idea. Um, And often uh, the large corpora are necessary because they're not very curated. There's just a lot of garbage. And if you have a higher quality uh, corpus, you can get similar results with, with much, much less, uh, uh, um, 
with, with well, fewer. Uh, uh, less language, fewer words. Size. Less language. Le- less language, fewer words. Yeah. Wait, so, um, okay, can I, like, so let me try and articulate what's what's amazing about this, which is that basically you can shake the syntax tree, or in this case, the, the co-occurrence tree, and then, like, meaning falls out of it. So, like, just from a, a sort of anthropomorphizing sort of thing, like, like I'm, I'm painting this in a generous, sort of credulous, you know, sort of way. If you just listen to a stream of language without interacting with the world at all, you can get all this stuff just by, like, listening to how people are using words. And then imagine being able to interact with the world while um, people are using words. And then you realize, okay, you can actually learn a ton about how words mean things, like what they mean and like, you know, what you can do with them and what other people mean by them by just looking at these very, very simple co-occurrence, you know, this word tends to be around this one. And if you know only that, you can get a ton from it. So what can't you get from that? Why isn't distributional semantics, basically this idea that, you know, if you know these co-occurrence statistics, you know what words mean. Why does that not give us uh, a full theory of meaning. I'm sympathetic to the idea that, you know, in the end, right, you, we, we want to be able to do things with language um, and meaning that y- you, you have to ground it at some point, right? You can't just know that, um, you know, these two words are associated in this way. Um, you, you do want to know at least for some words, right, what they refer to and what effects they have in the real world. Um, the question, though, is, uh, or the issue is, you know, perhaps one can accomplish that with far less grounding than we uh, we, we thought was needed, even, you know, say 10 years ago. That um, Grounding, just to be clear, is the, I, I, I'm at, this is a question, like, so that's like, if I am talking about the word lamp, it's like, I could use that successfully in a sentence, but if I've never seen or turned on a lamp or like whatever, like, okay. And so you need that thing where it's like, okay, uh, sure, I could successfully use this in a sentence, but unless you've actually turned one on like was, is that is that that that's basically the, the issue that we're talking yeah, about right? yeah yeah and it's and it's not uh, you know so there are now uh, lots of these um hybrid models that combine language with uh with vision right so generative art is a perfect example right where you you know you're using language to generate um visual visual output so you're doing things with language and i think that's 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 a step in the right direction but it's not just vision right so for example, people who are born blind, right, don't have any experience of what things look like. They use visual language a lot, and we, we wouldn't want to say that it has no meaning, right? So the meaning, though, uh, th- th- that meaning lacks connections to real visual experience, but it has a lot of the same distributional connections to all these other things, right? And so um, it's... I think meaningful to know. So, if someone who uh, who's blind, who has never seen colors, many such people know, for example, that you know, red is more similar to orange than it is to green. Um, that's not, I think, empty meaning. Uh, it's it's actually it's useful meaning, even if it's not connected to phenomenological experience. The point is that, and and this is, uh, I find this extremely exciting that 
it could be that so much of that can actually come just from the distributional information so that you can kind of ground it in a few places with the world. And that could be sufficient. And that could be that, 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 it's, that that's all you need. So can we call your position, lightly held, uh, distributional semantics plus? That like, you know, distributional semantics gives you a lot and there's like, a, like you can go very far down that road. And if you have a few extra additions and those additions are incredibly important, but they're not necessarily the bulk of everything, then that kind of ties language in. And there's your, there's where you start to construct a pretty robust theory of meaning. Yeah. So I, I, I would add one thing to it though, is that um, I think it's pretty clear that um, causality and causal reasoning is, 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 is central to how we reason. Um, and and that, that's been a common critique of these distributional models, particularly when people start suggesting that, you know, if you keep scaling them up, uh, you'll get to this, you know, idea of artificial general intelligence, right? Which you can get back to, it's, it's never quite made sense to me. But, um, but, but one could certainly... Uh, see why, you know, someone would be sympathetic to the idea that, look, you know, we keep adding data and processing power and we keep being surprised by just how much is possible, you know, these models, uh, like how, how much is, how far you can get with just relying on language. Um, but uh, there, there, The, the 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 issue is that it depends sorry it depends on whether what we care about more is using these models right as models of human intelligence or if we care just about their application kind of you know doing things like uh in this you know recently this um open ai chatbot right where you, you you can get it to create i don't know if you've seen this recently on twitter uh getting it to create um, all kinds of like little narratives and poems, you know, different, different topics. Um, and it's, 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 in, it, it's interesting stuff, right? Is it doing it in the same way that humans do it? Um, a lot of people don't care. Right. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm putting this caveat on it uh, because I think that, the question of whether humans derive as much meaning from distributional information as is possible in principle, as evidenced by the success of these models, right? Those are different questions. Uh, arguably, humans don't need to rely on distributional learning from language to the same extent because we are embodied agents and we actually interact with the world. Uh, and we have all of these other channels of information that are not available to these language models. But what's remarkable is that, to a large extent, you can compensate for not having any of that information by just throwing more language at it. Uh, now, of course, the language is generated by people who have embodied experiences in the world, right? Um, it's not like these are other, right, disembodied, uh, you know, computer models generating the content just from observing the world. So there are embodied humans in the loop uh, that are generating all of this content. 
Um, but I, I think um, I, I wish, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, people had been asked, like, okay, if you keep scaling up these methods, like, what do you think is and isn't possible? And I think the predictions would have been way off. Uh, even the most optimistic predictions would have been way off. I, I, I think my sense is that, you know, if you showed people from 10, 15 years ago, the output of um, these large language models and say, well, can you, can, can you, what do you think this model knows? Can you get there just from distributional, basically distributional semantics? No one would say, oh yeah, sure. You know, we'll have faster computers 10 years from now and we'll be able to do this, you know? So I, it, it's quite remarkable. So we've got a lot of ground to cover here. Um, next big question is what was proto-language like? And I guess I know that we're kind of getting a little far afield from probably your core area here, but I, I, I'm really curious for your take on this. So what, what essentially is the missing link between the massively flexible and complicated languages we have now versus, you know, whatever existed before that, you know, simple barks, grunts, points, shouts, that sort of thing. And like, at what point did we have something that was like as communicatively as useful as our modern languages, but maybe like a little clunkier to express things? Is that what it was like? Like, so yeah, what's, what's, what, tell me, tell me about proto-language like that. Does that make any sense yeah. even? Yeah, it makes sense. And it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to engage in, in speculation, but Feel I wanted free to, to sign speculate that, frivolously on this. Yeah. The truth of the matter is empirically, no one has any idea. There, there are lots of people who've published books, book length speculations on this, on this question. And, uh, really right. No one has any idea. Um, so what do I think? I think that, um, a lot of the things that we kind of take for granted now, um, that are true of all modern human languages, right, uh, didn't exist. So a lot of complex syntax, uh, the ability to um, to form complex sentences with all sorts of embedded clauses. Um, I mean, that's that's not even that historically old. A lot of that came about uh, with literacy and writing and the you know, influence of, of written language. Um, and so if we're talking about proto-proto language, right? So probably pre-homo sapiens. Um, there's no reason to think that, uh, you know, they would have been using syntactically, com whatever language was syntactically complex. Um, I think if I had to guess sort of what it was centered on, it would be um, communicating about social topics, uh, right? So um, I'm not, that sympathetic to the idea of like language as gossip, right? That's a, that's a popular idea uh, because you need fairly complex language to gossip, um, right? But I think there's some, there, there's reason to think that for a long time, our lineage has um, diverged from other uh, primates in being uh, more cooperative, uh, right? And so, I can imagine language being used in the service of cooperation. So uh, being, I think, richly combined with gestures uh, to 
basically coordinate actions to get people to, you know, to do things together and to help manage those, um, those, those, those actions. Right. So, um, the, the other thing I think that, uh, so, and, and to set goals, right. Uh, you know, because once you have a common goal, let's say, you know, you're moving a couch with someone, um, everyone, each person has to figure out for themselves, like how to hold it and like what makes sense given, you know, their body. Uh, but to get that to work at minimum, you have to have a common goal. You have to agree on where you're moving it. Um, right. And that, that's, that language makes, uh, sharing goals much easier. Um, and so you don't need complicated syntax. You don't need that rich a vocabulary. Um, so, but, but, so that, that's my sense. Uh, now one consequence of this is probably these proto languages would be quite local. So they would be, they would work within a very small community. Uh, they, uh, depended probably on lots of common ground and of knowing the individuals that you're communicating with, right? Which, if you compare that to a language like English, right, we expect to be able to meet a stranger and be able to communicate with them. It's not, the rapport is not going to be as good as talking to someone you've known for a long time, but like, you can still talk to them. And my hunch is that with proto-languages, they would not really be very usable with someone that you don't already know because you just you wouldn't have enough shared um, shared vocabulary um, uh, and, and shared reference. So I guess there's one other thing that I just want to ask about here, um, which and then we can you know start to tie this into some of our other other themes. But so this is this is uh, an idea that I've been a big fan of for a long time. And unsurprisingly, based on the precedent in this conversation, it comes from Michael Tomasello. And so it's, you know, his uh, Circa 2000 book, the, the Cultural Origins of Human Cognition. And the central argument of that book, you know, forgive me if I, if I get any details wrong of it, is basically saying, okay, so if you go back and, and just sort of retrace what we know about human evolution, we don't have a lot of like time to evolve a bunch of like really sophisticated stuff that gives us all of the like col- the, the cognitive apparatus to, like build culture and language and that sort of time we really like we really only have time for like one maybe two really big let's call them cognitive innovations from an from from an evolutionary process and the one that he posits is this idea of joint attention uh the basic idea being that like uh if you look at like uh so i have a dog uh, and when I am playing with the dog, uh, and I throw the toy, but she doesn't go get it. I point at the toy. Uh, and what does she look at? Does she look at the toy? No, she looks at the end of my finger. And what, what Tomasello points out was that when you point and a baby, uh, uh, you're trying to get a baby's attention, she doesn't look to the end of your finger. She looks at where you're pointing. And so, uh, the big cognitive innovation was, um, so most animals have dyadic, you know, relationships. It's them. It's the other agent. I can express to you that I'm mad at you by frowning at you. Um, and then we started to be able to become to do triads, right? So we can say, okay, here's, here's me. Here's you, Gary. Here's this pen. We're both going to take a second to appreciate this pen. And we can do that. Um, and language helps us 
is a means of doing that more at a greater and greater level of sophistication, like you said, common goals. So to what extent, so like I said, that book is circa 2000. To what extent is that, does that reflect how you understand uh, all of this sort of stuff and, and, and square with, with the way you think about language? Yeah, so I, I think joint attention and, and pointing is, is really fundamental. And I, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny because when uh, linguists, like in the Chomsky tradition, talk about language evolution, right? They want to talk about the evolution of merge, right? Or, you know, syntax more generally, but that, you know, that's what they want to know. And I think that's, that's the wrong approach, right? Um, what we, we, it, it, we would be better served. And indeed, you know, the language evolution community has been better served by uh, attending to the evolution of pointing. Um, and so that, um, I guess, uh, wager prediction Tomasello made that this is important. I think I think is is on point. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, right. Uh, but but here's 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 a wrinkle in this. So um, there aren't uh, certainly the, there, there aren't many animals. Some would say that you know there are no animals that that point. Um, uh, but there are a bunch of animals that can be learned uh, that can be uh, taught to follow points. Um, so, you know, chimps, it's not that hard. Teach them to follow points, right? They don't do it in the wild. Um, dogs, of course, uh, can as well. You know, we've bred some breeds to kind of do it more spontaneously. Um, I believe they're called but pointers. Pointer, pointers, yes. Um, so it's not that, the point is, it's not that difficult. Uh, what's interesting about humans is that, um, uh, humans are inherently motivated to do it in a way, arguably that other animals are not. And if you look at like young babies, they're not very good at following points. Like there is a kind of learning unfolding process that takes place where even with like, you know, a three-year-old, you know, you point to something and they're kind of looking and you're like, no, look at where I'm pointing. Like, look, right. So it's not trivial even for humans, but, I think what is clear is that uh, starting with, with infancy, I mean, there is an inherent motivation to engage in joint attention. There's a lot of actually learning that has to take place and enculturation. And um, what this suggests to me is that, you know, whatever genetic change took place, and there probably was one that, uh, or many that uh, are relevant, um, had to do with tweaking the motivation kind of in... Um, uh, uh, machine learning terms, tweaking the loss function, right? Basically making it fun for, uh, for babies to engage with others, with other kids, with adults. Uh, and you can see that, right? So babies are inherently motivated by social reward, right? They're motivated by uh, food in the same way that other animals are. Food, food is a great uh, reward, but they're also motivated by, you know, making someone laugh right? And by uh, engaging their attention. So it's, it seems to be inherently rewarding for kids to get like, you know, their mom to look to attend to what they're attending to. Um, so, and probably in terms of genetics, it's, it's, it's not, it, it's, it's a change with massive consequences, but uh, mechanistically, it's probably not a big change. And um there is a cool parallel analog that I randomly came across 
so this is from Barb Finley, who I had as a um, as a as a professor when I was an undergrad, and I randomly came across an, a transcript of an interview that she gave, and she was talking about randomly, you know, connecting um, language evolution and prairie voles, which you know I've I've heard about prairie voles and pair bonding and oxytocin, right? So briefly, you know, they're uh, rodents, right? And um, they were the, they're the model organism. They became the model organism for um, uh, uh, hormonal effects of, of oxytocin. And I, I remember hearing about this over the years, and I didn't really understand what the big deal was. And reading through the interview, I was like, oh, I see, right? The big deal is that there are other related species that um, don't have long-term pair bonds and don't uh, co-parent their offspring. And then here are these prairie voles, and they, unlike all the other ones, have this massively different social organization. And when when people started studying kind of what was different, they realized that what was different was uh, how they used oxytocin, which in other species was used basically to promote mother-offspring bonding. And in prairie voles, it it, it became co-opted to... uh, because it was released when um, uh, the, they were around their mate, right? So that same mechanism now made it rewarding to be around your mate and to, you know, to, it felt good to to be around them in the same way in, in this case as it felt good for the mother to be with uh, her offspring. And so that little tweak in the reward function, right, has these massive consequences on the social organization. And so Barb's point was that she thought something similar happened in the human lineage that made language make sense, right? Because language as a communication system only makes sense in an environment where there is some base level of cooperation because if most of what people did with language is lie, right? It wouldn't be adaptive to learn it because like, why would you want to just be lied to? So it only exists kind of in a stable state when it's mostly used, you know, to not mislead. Um, and, um, right, and that's why other uh, animal communication systems and other non-linguistic human communication systems are much costlier, right, and have this property of like forced honesty, as it's called. So it's much easier to lie with language than to lie with your facial expressions, uh, right, because you know, it, 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 facial expressions evolved to be more honest. Um, and that goes for, um, for non-human animal communication, right? Um, even more so. So, um, the, yeah, uh, so it, 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 it's already a certain type of species in which language even makes sense. And then the idea is that there's a kind of feedback loop where, once you you get going, once you enter this linguistic trajectory, and you presumably start with much simpler and more limited languages, it can reinforce it. So language allows you to be even more cooperative than you would be otherwise. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, 
I promise you will like the rest of my work and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me, and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. What is iconicity? How does it work in language? And what do we misunderstand about how it works in language, just on a sort of colloquial level? So iconicity is the resemblance between form and meaning. It's, it's been getting a lot of attention recently as a property of language because uh, sort of as a reaction to it being um, ignored or... Um, uh, right, because if you if you look at languages, you know you're, you're I guess, initially struck by uh, the lack of iconicity, so arbitrariness. So you know the word "dog" not sounding or looking like a dog. Um, but and so it is. It is kind of, in a sense, the words. the opposite of arbitrariness, right? It's like if a ling- if a, an aspect of language is iconic, it's non arbitrary. There's like a very concrete connection between what you're saying and like what you're talking about, right? Is that is that the adequate? Yeah, quote, yeah. Level? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of subtlety to it um, because, um, at a certain level of an analysis, people have always understood languages to have some iconic properties. So, for example, um, you know, when you make something singular into a plural, it's more common to add things to it, right? So you make the word longer, right? And that's a kind of iconicity. Right. So the word dogs is, you know, it's a bigger signal. It's, it's, there's more stuff than the word dog. Uh, if you want to, like, you're listing things and the more things there are, the more words you say. So there is a kind of a non-arbitrary relationship between, you know, the amount of stuff in language and the amount of stuff in, in the world. Um, but the the more contentious form is really at this kind of single word level, um, you know, that if you don't know the language, right, can you guess something about a word's meaning just from being exposed to its form, to its sound, or uh, to, to the way it's written? Um, and more and more studies show that, indeed, y- yeah, there's a lot of signal there. Um, and so the, 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 the tide has really been shifting with people arguing that, you know, maybe what we should be trying to explain is um, why isn't language more iconic or, you know, where does arbitrariness come from? Not where does iconicity come from? Because iconicity is sort of the default. It's like, it's how communication often works. Um, And it's how the world works. Well, so just to take, so like, 
uh, basically one way to frame that would be like, if I were a human, like a cognitively modern human, but no one taught me language, the way that I would do it by default is iconicity, right? I would try to like, is that what you mean by like taking that as the default? Is that, that that's the thing that kind of, if you didn't know any other strategies, that's the one you'd try first. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's that, that's right. Um, and, you know, part of it also, it, right, it comes from uh, our experiences with the world. So, for example, you know, larger objects make a louder sound when they fall. So, you know, you observe that there's a relationship between an object's size or its weight, right, and the sound it makes. Um, and so, you know, why not inf- bring that into language? And indeed, it seems that we have. Um, and so once you start really looking at the relationships and playing those kinds of games where you give people words in a foreign language, try to get them to you know, guess what they might mean or create novel vocalizations that uh, you say, create a vocalization that, you know, that means X, right? And you play it to other people and you try to get them to guess what it, what, what it might mean. And people are uh, very far from random, you know, that, so, so, uh, and, and this is not a hard kind of game to play. And one kind of surprising thing is that this is something that I think people have been, you know, taking seriously for a long time in the visual domain uh, where you can, you know, make a sign for a square. So you make a square. Okay, sure. So that makes sense, right? But like, you can't do that with speech, can you? Well, it turns out, you know, maybe not square, but lots of things you can express iconically with speech because speech and uh, auditory modality is actually very rich. So you have a lot of degrees of freedom. You can say things, um, you know, louder, softer, faster, slower. You can modulate your pitch in various ways. And taken together, uh, there's a lot of structure there that can be mapped onto the structure in the world so that, you know, when you, especially in context, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense, right? That has a resemblance, even though it doesn't look like the thing. So just in like, you know, kind of simplifying, uh, like overly simplistic would be that we kind of imagine that languages are fundamentally more about arbitrariness but actually, as you start to scrutinize that assumption, it becomes more and more clear that iconicity plays a, a big role. Is that is that kind of that's the, right? That's the right. Thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I do have something that I want to ask. You know, I, I kind of want to tie some of these things together uh, with something on that. But before we get to that, I want to kind of go down uh, a sort of uh, you know like a hobby horse of mine and uh, ask about uh, critical periods and what part of, of critical periods, uh, what part of languages are, are determined by critical periods. And I want to kind of give my own, like the reason why I, I care about this, my own kind of like theory on this, and then you can, you can uh, take uh, on any, any part of that that you want to. But for me, I get this question all of the time, and I'm just flabbergasted by it every time. But basically, when I'm back in the U.S., people are like, okay, hey, uh, so you've been living in England for you know, a while now. Like, where's your English accent? And I always want to be like, dude, first of all, just because you're in Great Britain does not mean British people want to hang out with you. And second of all, that's not how accents work. Uh, you know, basically, you're not going to pick up a new accent after like age 12, uh, especially not for something that's been your mother tongue. And it's not that you can't produce another accent. Uh, I mean, like, but it's it's more like 
you know, when like an Australian actor plays an American and it's very convincing, uh, but it's not ingrained into who they are in the national speech. So I, uh, you know, I want to double check that by you in case I'm, I'm, I'm wrong, but I, in particular, I want to make this larger argument about that. I think this, that this is sort of a part of, um, which is that people also have this assumption that I think comes from a similar place that children are fundamentally better at language learning than adults. Um, and I have a real big bone to pick with that for the reason that essentially in my reading of it, there's no cognitive reason why children would be more effective language learners, uh, at least not any big overwhelming one. And the reason is that so children are as an empirical fact, better at learning languages, uh, than adults are, but that's because if they don't learn that first language, they can't talk. Right. And they're not embarrassed about getting anything wrong. And they also have these massive incentives for why they want to become proficient in that language. And they don't have anything else going on in life. And so if you put, you know, adults in that exact same structure where there's no embarrassment, there's high communicative necessity and nothing else to do, they'd be at least as good as kids. And so maybe slightly more nuanced thing here is that like, okay, kids are more flexible and they don't have the baggage of like, thinking about, okay, well, this is different than my first language that I learned and that sort of stuff. So maybe that is an advantage. Uh, but humans on the, uh, adults on the other hand are very good at learning to learn and they've done a lot of that. So they know how to successfully learn something and they can kind of use that as a thing. So that's kind of a wash there. But anyway, so that, that all is, you know, critical periods, uh, children, adults, a lot there, kind of a smattering of things. Um, but I wanted to just sort of put all of that in front of you. And if there's anything that I've been misleading people on, uh, tell me that. But those those are two things that come up commonly when I'm just yeah. talking to people about language. Yeah. No, I uh, I don't think you've been misleading uh, people on anything. So one thing I, I often point out is that um, kids are in some ways better, right, at, at lots of things. Like meaning that um, not just language, but many things can be learned better, you know, later on if you if you start young. Right. So musical instruments, right. Gymnastics, all kinds of things. Right. It you're going to be better if you start doing it younger. I've never been convinced that language is an outlier in this regard, that language, that whatever kind of sensitive period, critical period. Right. Like, yeah, but but it goes for many things that we do, especially right. Procedural things. Right. Things that require uh, right. Executing you know, complex movements, right? Keeping track of complex distributions, right? Uh, music, dance, these, the, you know, uh, these, these kinds of things, right? Uh, fit, fit into that. So uh, if you think about like what aspects of language um, are adults better at, um, you know, you can't give a five-year-old a bunch of, uh, even one who can read, right? A bunch of, uh, right, flashcards with, you know, word meanings, right? Okay. Study these, you know, and here pass a test, right? Like adults do way better at that, right? So that's kind of a more declarative uh, uh, learning. And also if you um, put people into like, if if you you run kids and adults on on an actual lab experiment, it's very difficult to find any language tasks on which kids do better uh, compared to adults. So adults are sort of better in the moment learners, they're smarter learners, um, especially when it comes to, to syntax, vocabulary, phonology, we can, we can get back to, uh, you know, the adults will just do better, 
The difference is that over a longer period, um, the adults will kind of, their learning will stagnate more, will plateau, and the kids will keep going and, and, and uh, getting better. And I think the social things, motivation, embarrassment, and uh, in the case of learning, let's say a second language, you know, family moves to a different country, right? The adult, the parents and the kids all start learning this new language at the same time, right? Initially, the adults will be better. But, you know, six months later, right, they're going to um, start slowing down and the kids will, will accelerate and um, um, will we'll, we'll start outperforming. And I think the motivational aspects are very much there and, and generally underappreciated. And that's why, yeah, I, I totally agree that if you, you know, raise the stakes and you have an immersive environment where the adults can't rely on their first language, they have to learn their second language, they, they would uh, do a whole lot better than, you know, the normal, um, the normal situation. And of course, if we look kind of beyond English speaking world, right, where pretty much anywhere you go, English is sort of the prestige language. And so, you know, uh, the, the incentives aren't really there. If you look, you know, most of the world is multilingual and um, you have often adults learning other languages um, and, you know, they, they, they're expected to master them. Um, the expectations are much higher than our expectations for, you know, people learning Spanish in high school. Right. So, so I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, there is this other factor also that often confounds work on critical periods, which is that as you start learning something at a later age, um, like a second language, it's not just right that, you know, you have more going on in your life. You, the incentives are different, but you're also more entrenched in your first language. So especially when a second language is very different, you have, you have uh, a lot of, um, uh, kind of conflicting, uh, con- right, conflicting information. Um, and I want to mention one more thing, which is uh, you started this by talking about accents. And I think accents and phonology are a slightly different category because um, there is, I think, good reason to think that, like, it's not obvious, you know, wh- wh- why why are there accents? Why can you tell where a person is from, even putting foreign language accents aside, right? Regional accents, right? That, you know, uh, you can tell where someone is from, you know, where they grew up based on how they speak. Like, why why does it work that way? And I think there is some reason to think that phonological systems evolve culturally to be such that they're hard to fake, right? That they leave a mark. Um, And, uh, and, and, and it's part of the social function of language of using it to identify as a, as a, as a kind of a, uh, a marker of insider versus outsider status. That someone coming into the community from the outside, you know, they, they can maybe, you know, they can fake the clothes, right? But it's hard to fake. They can learn the words, right? And they can even learn the grammar, but it's hard to fully learn the, 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 the pronunciation. Uh, and it didn't have to be this way, right? You could imagine language systems that 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 don't work in this way. Yeah, I guess really the the thing that I want to bring it all around to is you had this great uh, statement: uh, language is a system of categories, and I think that really is a way of of structuring a lot of the the stuff that we 
talk about, especially when you take seriously the idea that these categories are for doing something in the world. And that is the that is the impetus for why we're trying to do language. It's not because our brains have all this cool structure in it. And you know, there is structure and there's cool stuff in there and we can do interesting cognitive things. But we're trying to cooperate in a society is one of the things you said. And in trying to do that, language helps facilitate this. You can do it to a more or less efficient uh, extent, Um, but then you can carve up the world into these categories. The categories depend on what you're trying to do, the situations you're in yourself. And this is is something I want to talk about. If we had another hour, we could spend it all on this, but why are languages different from one another? Um, and we touched on it a little bit in terms of things like iconicity and, 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 and those, those sort of things, but maybe just, you know, suffice to say that there's lots of different ways of solving the communicative problem that, that, that you're facing, whatever, whatever it might be and just, you know, a sentence. Um, but, uh, that also there's, uh, th- these different, uh, ways of getting to this place of establishing the meaning of something. And we talked about this with the distributional semantics that, gosh, you can really go a long ways down the road of, I'm just going to observe how this person is using language without knowing anything about language in general and just say, well, this word, and, you know, co-occur is frequently next to this one. And, you know, if, if you can look at a bunch of data, even a bunch of noisy data, you can get a lot from that. But that doesn't mean that's entirely what humans are doing. Uh, there are other ways of learning it, but you can get a lot out of that 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 principle. Um, so that gives you a sense of the range of, of, of where meaningful things can come from. And then the kind of final thing that I'll tie it together with and, and then let you um, pick apart, you know, kind of what I'm saying here and put your own spin on it is that I think a lot of the way that people think about this and is in terms of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, right? So what is the effect of, of language on thought? And something that we would talk about if we had another hour is, you know, what is the language of thought? What are, what are concepts underlying, you know, like just in our mind and how do those relate to, to language? Um, and we talked, you know, I think quite a bit about, you know, that, that, that's at the core of language as a system of categories. But my take on the, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and why I don't really find it that compelling anymore is that, you know, the, the sort of bookends, the, the sort of black and white of it is like, okay, well, language doesn't affect thought. You can speak any language, you can have the same thoughts. Or you can have, well, language totally, you can't have any real thought without language and that sort of stuff. We don't need to go down the whole sort of thing because, again, we're, we're coming up on our, our time thing here. But just basically the, the, the kind of sad truth of it is that, well, it's all complicated. There is no one single answer to this is how language affects thought. And I think that's reflected in every kind of answer that you gave is like, well, it depends on the specific aspect of language and the specific aspect of thought that we're looking at. And then there can be cases of more or less influence, um, uh, by language and, and culture and that sort of things. And, 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 and that's, you know, there's no getting around that, that complicatedness of it. So I guess that would be my gloss on the the big thing here, uh, and um, that's yeah. <laughs> that's, so so, so let me in there. So, let, so let go me, ahead. Let me put a, a, a slightly more uh, you know, positive spin on on war, please. Um, who uh, has actually been uh, pretty influential um, for for me in that his you know he 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 was not a um, an empirical scientist, right? Uh, he didn't run any experiments. But what's what's interesting about his writing, and what I, and, and the reason that people read it, I mean, there aren't that many uh, 
writers, you know, portion of writers, you know, from the 30s and 40s, right, that are being read still, right, uh, by scientists, right, is that his thinking inspires experiments, inspires uh, hypotheses, testable hypotheses. And so I don't so much care about the his you know specific claims, but one of of, of his I think uh, very important observations that uh, I think has driven a lot of research is to be critical about um, the structure and content of your own language, the language that you you know habitually use, because there is a tendency, and every time I teach this to undergrads, it's a very counterintuitive idea. Be- precisely because of this tendency where you think about the categories of your language and you treat those as just givens, as defaults, right? Um, And you don't question them. And if you then learn about that another language does it differently, you're like, oh, well, you know, that's interesting. So, you know, we have this. So English has the word blue and Russian distinguishes light blue from dark blue. But blue is the real thing. But of course, if you were, you know, come approaching this from, from the perspective of the Russian speaker, you'd be like, that's weird that English speakers don't care about this obviously important distinction, right? And so the, the truth of the matter, right, is that there, these are multiple solutions, which raises the empirical question of what are their consequences. And so Worf invokes this kind of rhetorical figure of uh, uh, Mr. Everyman, who kind of naively assumes that, you know, the reason that two things are called by the same name in, you know, English is because they are, they have, they have something important in common. Like, so of course they should be named by the same name. Um, Right. And, and he challenges that. He says, no, you know, it's what English does but it need not reflect some objective reality, hence the relativity, right? That's what the relativity is. There's always a perspective. And I think that's a really valuable um, insight that has really actually driven quite a lot of empirical research and also research in linguistics, uh, of the more descriptive uh, linguistic uh, type, you know, where people really try not to impose kind of categories, but try to describe the system on its own terms. Um, so, so, um, yeah, I, I like Worf. <laughs> uh, that's a great, uh, note to, to end on there. And Gary, I, I have one final question for you and, and you've got a couple minutes to answer it here. Uh, what are three books that have most influenced the way you think? One of them is, uh, Valentina Breitenberg's Vehicles. I don't know if you know that one. It's, uh, yeah. I've gotten that from um, a few people. Really? That's yeah. great because I, I think it, it, it should be more, known and it should be included for example on on you know more the people um, for whom it is uh, known it is revered as like this is the thing that told me how to think about things yeah 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 it's really great and uh if i uh if i ever write a a book i like that's kind of my 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 model of like that's the kind of book that i would want to write uh even if you know not that many people read it it's like it's elegant, it's beautiful, and it's revealing. Um, it has this amazing structure. So the the title is uh, Vehicles, Experiments in Synthetic Psychology. It's from the mid-80s, but it's it's very um, modern still. So that's one. I, I already mentioned Dan Dennett, 
Um, I read a bunch of his books in uh, when I was in grad school. So Consciousness Explained, Freedom Evolves. Um, I think when he talks about language, I, he, he's been, I think, uh, maybe maybe misled by Chomsky. And there Chomsky is no thinking, specialist but... uh, of any field where Dan did it talks about their speciality and they think, oh my God, well, he totally understood it. That's like, yeah, that's like yeah, the ironclad, yeah. whatever isn't your specialty. Gosh, God, that guy's very, very insightful. But then for your specialty, it's always like, well, he didn't, he doesn't really get yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's really, it's also right. It's to me, it's, it's not about getting all the details, right. It's about kind of inspiring further thinking. Um, so in terms of my work, uh, those, the, those two, I think, uh, have been, is there a single one that stands out? My, my favorite is the intentional stance. That one is again, that for me is like one of the most influential things for the, the like the research that I have done such one to do. Is there one that stands out for you specifically? Consciousness explained, uh, even though consciousness isn't my my specialty, but there is a part of that book where he talks about, uh, I think what he calls cognitive auto-stimulation, right? That, you know, it's not like every part of your brain is equally connected to everything else, right? There's no one part that knows everything. And so how can talking to yourself make sense? How can you say something that you don't already know? But of course we do. You You start writing, you start talking, and you make connections that you didn't previously have. So uh, thinking about that and thinking about kind of language, even within, right, not language. So this is now uh, not being used for external communication, but for talking to oneself, the kind of power that it can have um, has been, has been very um, influential. And then um, uh, in terms of um, other, other stuff. So uh, in terms of fiction, the, the person I would I would pick um, is um, Paul Auster. I've read all of his books, which uh, I'm not someone who like goes through an author and just reads all of their books for some sake of you know completion. But like every single one of his books, I feel like has spoken to me in some way. And part of that is I, I think he kind of mostly keeps writing the same book over and over again, so they, 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 there's a similarity to them. But there's something about um, his characters that. I don't know, has, has, has appealed to me. It, it's a, a kind of, you know, the feeling, the feeling you get that w- when you read a certain book. So it's not even about the plot as such. It's kind of the, the journey that he takes you on. Um, Is there a single one, just a, a title? So if, for someone who, who's never read him before, the, um, it's the New York trilogy uh, one of his early books it's three short books is a is a really nice one to kind of see if, if you like him or not but his uh most i think the most recent book um four three two one it's, it's his longest and it's kind of most ambitious original um is is really amazing it's kind of him at you know his the top of his game um yeah gary this has been a huge pleasure thank you for taking the time to talk today yeah my pleasure Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Gary Lupian. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. As always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of The Meaning Lab Podcast.